This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 43, Levity Yoga, Subtle Body and Healing. My name is Erica, and I'm your host. For this episode, I sat down with Peter Stereos. Peter is a yoga teacher, writer, architect, the founder of Menduka, and the creator of Levity Yoga. He taught yoga at the Obama White House for First Lady Michelle's anti-obesity programs, and in 2018 was brought in by the Pentagon to share yoga's therapeutic effect with the U.S. Marine Corps. Today, we sit down to discuss Peter's new book, Gravity and Grace, the evolution of his renowned instructional DVD, selected as one of Yoga's Journal Top 15 Videos of All Time. I really appreciate your support with this podcast. Visit our VIP member page at patreon.com slash on and off your mat to help me continue to offer this podcast, cover production costs, and allow me to create more episodes. As a thank you, you get access to new exclusive content every month. Okay, ready? Let's get to today's episode with Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. So, Peter, for listeners that don't know you very well, can you start us off with telling us about yourself and your yoga journey a little bit? Sure. I uh, was probably the most unlikely candidate to start a (laughs) yoga journey 45 years ago, back in the early 70s, kind of meat and potato, middle-class family in Central California. Uh, but I just literally stumbled into a room filled with, you know, students. It's actually a room full of girls at a university rec center. And and I was like, what is it? She said, well, why don't you come back and try it? And I said, sure, I'll come back. So I, I went the next week to this class and the, oh, excuse me, this um, intense athletic part of the practice was what intrigued me, mm. where I felt like, uh, wow, this is not what I expected it to be. And that, that challenge and curiosity in, in back then was enough as an athlete to like hook me. And, and I was hooked because I had a lot of kind of injuries. So that, that process What were you started, doing as an athlete that got you injured before? Uh, I played basketball and mm-hmm. I was a competitive skier. Okay. Um, so I had bad knees, yeah, and, knees. <laughs> and, and, you know, bad shoulders actually from, from overlift weights and, uh, yoga helped me get out of pain. The, the other part of my life, as you can see from my office is I'm an architect and in college, the architecture majors would had this badge of honor, how many all nighters you could pull to finish projects. And so I was totally abusing my body mm. fatigue and sitting at a desk for 12 hours without a break. So my neck was also a problem. And yoga in those days just helped me so much, like take, you know, manage this, this kind of discomfort in my body. But it wasn't until I, uh, (laughs) this is funny. It wasn't until I started playing rugby that yoga became more of a priority for me. Mm. As you might imagine, uh, <laughs> I, I started playing rugby and the, the aches and pains in my body were so intense. And ironically, rugby was unexpected. But what my rugby career took me to New Zealand mm. to play. And it's in New Zealand that I met this master teacher of yoga that I ended up studying with for 20 years. And um, that just kind of coincidental meeting I, I describe in my book, how, you know, was it divine or, you know, was it some divine intervention that, that 
took me to New Zealand and then introduced me to this teacher who I ended up studying with for 20 years and went to India for a year. I mean, it's just when I really look back on my path, it's just one coincidence after another that just seemed destined to create a life of yoga for me. And that's kind of where I am today. This author of a book on yoga, who would have guessed, you know, (laughs) 45 years ago that that would be me. Yeah. Isn't it amazing to see how things unfold and you didn't expect any of this to happen? No, it's, it's, you know, the Facebook is such a funny social media because (laughs) all these old guys like me out of the woodwork, I'm getting these like friend requests from people I went to high school with. And they're, they're kind of like, is that really you? Peter (laughs) Starr, you know, it's just like this crazy kid that turned into a yoga teacher is like, yeah, it's me. Um, anyway. Yeah. I think most people would think the same of me. (laughs) They found me after 20 years and be like, really yoga teacher. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look at that. Yeah. I'm sure this is how you feel about yoga. Thank God I found yoga. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's exactly how I feel. And a lot of people feel like that, which is so inspiring. It is inspiring. Mm -hmm. In, in the research for my book, the, Inspiration was one of those um, qualities of longevity. Like if you have inspiration in your life, it usually means you're going to live a long life. And creativity was another one. You know, like if you have some creative passion, um, it it really helps the longevity of a, a human's life. And my life is blessed in that, you know, architecture is a very creative um, uh, profession and so is yoga. And the, and the two of them are so uh, amazingly interrelated mm. in, you know, bizarre ways. How so? Well, um, the, the quality of space, let's say, for instance, when, when you mm. think about walking into a, a Gothic cathedral in Europe or, you know, in modern architecture, one of Frank Gehry's magnificent structures, these kind of uh, stainless steel, like the the Performing Arts Center in Los Angeles that he designed, you walk into the lobby of that building and it just takes your breath away. Mm -hmm. And so this quality of space has energy. And in the yoga that I've kind of developed, let's say, through my own experience with my teachers and then going out on my own, Mm -hmm. finding inner space and, and that how do we find inner space in yoga we create softness in our bodies. And, mm. and it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, I, I say this in a way to provoke conversation, stretching in yoga is overrated. And because stretching is this two-dimensional uh, model in a way that we have this muscle origin and a muscle insertion, and we're trying to create movement in that line of muscle to stretch. And the body is really how it moves is not dependent on two-dimensional movement. It's, it's three-dimensional movement. When we soften, it actually is more effective in releasing subconscious tension in the connective tissue web that actually what modern research is finding is the more um, accurate model mm-hmm. of how we move. It, we're a net that moves, not bones and, and uh, muscle that move. Yeah. And when we soften, it, it creates a three-dimensional visceral experience 
of movement on a subtle body level that creates this space that literally invites us into moving deeper into, say, a yoga pose or moving deeper into relaxation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's the most um, prominent connection that I see between architecture when you walk into that external space experience of external space it creates this powerful uh feeling of awe you know you're just in awe of what it's like walking out into a night sky kind yeah, of the possibility is the infinite the of it mm-hmm. totally and then on the inside this idea of moving our attention inward and really starting to pay attention to these subtle sensations our breath And how with the creation of softness in breathing, soft breathing, soft um, approach to resistance in our bodies, whether it's a tight muscle or a tight joint or tight connective tissue, can we soften into these confrontations with Mm -hmm. resistance? And that process of softening is actually what creates this oneness of inner space that, oh, if I just release the grip in my diaphragm or release the grip in my pelvic floor, I create this space that creates these little, I call it little moments of bliss. Like when you release this tight muscle or joint and all of a sudden you've got this awesome feeling of bliss, little bliss that invites you instead of imposes movement on the body, invites movement into the body. And to me, that's been the key to healing all my rugby injuries, my Um, you know, just that day-to-day stress of driving on freeways or (laughs) deadlines or whatever it is, you know, difficult partners or children or you name it. It just, can we meet this hardness, this resistance in our world with a little more softness for the purpose, not not to win or lose, but just for the purpose of making some space. Mm And then what is invited into that space? And, and this is where, you know, who would have guessed that these discoveries that I kind of found on my yoga mat would apply to my relationships, you know, out, off the mat and my even business relationships going into, you know, meetings where we're dealing with negotiation and things. Can, can we just approach it with a little more softness and space? and attention and paying attention to what is being said and then respond in an unemotional way, just from the heart more than some kind of strategy from the brain and see what that uh, provides. And, and having, you know, this new renewed relationship with Manduka, this company that I founded, you know, 20 years ago, I, I'm seeing how effective this is when I go into these meetings now where I'm, I'm, I'm like the, I don't know, the, the elder in the room, you know, like <laughs> everyone in the room is 20 to 30 years younger than me. And I, I just have this position where I can listen and mm. make space and offer, you know, soft suggestions on how to develop certain ideas. And wow, it's, it's like, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I wish I'd have known this 30 years ago, you yeah, know? Very different, for sure. It is. Yeah. It's powerful. 
There's so many little things I want to come back to in what you answered, <laughs> but we'll Please. kind of go one at a time. Let's start with the yoga, the style that you founded, which is called Livity Yoga. You talked about softness being one of the important components of it. What else or what other principles are part of that practice? Great. So, so one of the things that, you know, how kids are sometimes grow up in reaction to what their parents' lives are. I don't know if you had that experience, but I had that experience growing up. Like my parents, I love them and I'm grateful for what they provided me, but th their way of living, you know, is almost exactly opposite of the way I choose to live. And, uh, and I think it's a little bit in reaction. And one of the things that I was in reaction from my teacher, I also love him and, and it feel just intense gratitude for having a 20 relationship with him. But I felt like he, this was my own judgment, that he intentionally made things more complicated than they needed to be to hook students into coming back next year and doing level three or level four, or instead of just like laying it out there in simple language and let, let the student through their own intuition and, and inner teacher find their own way And, and so th that reaction to the way I was taught influenced me. I, when I set a, a practice that, that uh, honored the, the journey that I've been on through injury and stuff, I, I came up with three principles of practice. And, and because I wanted it to be three, the, the number three. I think if you learn these three things, you can do yoga the rest of your life, you mm -hmm. know, and, and do it safe and, and be open to your own intuitive creative, you know, momentum, let's say. So, so these three principles of practice, the first one I call back body breathing. Mm -hmm. And just quickly, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. The back body breathing is just to break our addiction to front body breathing. And because ultimately what we want to do is breathe more three-dimensionally. I'm, I'm really big on this idea of three dimensions. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so three-dimensional breathing, we first have to Uh, strict habitual breathing, which is usually breathing shallow into the chest, or if you're breathing fuller chest and belly and letting the belly bloat. And, and somehow we've been sold this idea that belly breathing means letting your belly bloat out. And, Hang. you know, they say like a baby, blah, blah, blah. But, it, but when you really go into the deep old yoga books, you find that the word that they use, um, nabi, nabi doesn't mean belly. It actually means navel. Mm -hmm. And and when you talk about belly breathing, you're actually missing the subtlety of what the word nabi means. It really means to breathe through the navel, literally. And and when you consciously breathe as if you're inhaling through your navel, it actually changes the relationship with your belly. Instead of it bloating outward, there's a slight vacuum that mm -hmm. either holds the abdominal wall Um, stationary, or it even can slightly draw the, the abdominal wall in a little bit. And to me, that's important. So, so back body breathing is, is this first principle. And the first pose that we use is child's pose, but with the knees together. Because what that does with the knees together is your chest and belly rest on the legs, but it compresses this habitual pattern of breathing. And it literally forces you into mm -hmm. finding someplace else to breathe. It gives you a different proprioception. 
Totally. So, so now back body breathing, that's principle number one. And every class I've taught in the last 20 years starts in child's pose knees together because I want people to confront that challenge to breathe more holistically. Then the next thing is spine mechanics. And to me, the spine is such an important um, channel to move both physical and subtle body energy. And it requires a basic understanding of what makes a spine healthy physically and energetically. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the cueing in yoga to create, let's say, extension is frankly, um, I, 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 I'm going to say something that probably will be a little controversial. It's, it's overrated. Um, this whole idea in sun salutations in a typical vinyasa class of hinging at the hip and folding with a flat back, chest up, arms out, you know, chest lifting, chin extending, it, it creates problems over time for the spine. And, and you're seeing that as the result of the number of injuries that are happening in yoga classes. There's even medical papers now yeah. on yoga class injuries. And it's like, what? Yoga Especially when people effort so much into it. And we'll totally. come back to that idea for sure. And, and, the, and what the number one cause of injury in yoga classes is repetitive motion injuries, meaning we're fatiguing parts of our body because we're practicing yoga daily, which is a good thing, practicing yoga daily. But with this idea that more is better, if I do 108 sun salutations every day, that's better than doing three every day. And when you look at the typical vinyasa class and the transitions between, let's say, standing poses and even seated poses where we're doing that up dog, down dog, chaturanga transition 60 times in a class, and then you're doing that with your unlimited membership every day. Yeah, it's a, no wonder that the rotator cuffs are getting strained, the sacroiliac joints are getting strained, also two of the most common injuries in yoga, not to mention herniated discs, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're not saying to do less necessarily, but you're saying to bring more... Very heavy. Yeah. Yeah, to, to be more um, holistic in the way you look at movement in the spine. So spine mechanics is about how to create healthy movement in the spine physically and energetically. And literally what the reason I call it mechanics is it's fine to like, here's an example. A lot of, uh, let's say workshops that I'm teaching lately, half the room is teachers and half the room is beginners, especially on the book tour. And so so that's one of the most challenging environments for a yoga teacher to teach in because I'm, I'm trying to communicate multiple layers uh, of attention with a beginner and a teacher without either one of them getting bored. So when I start this idea of spine mechanics, I say, okay, you teachers in the room, tell me how you create extension in the spine. And, you know, you hear all sorts of things. It's like uh, feel the, pull the crown of your head up and that's great, but how do you pull the crown of your head up? What, what is the what does that mechanism mean? that allows you to pull it? Oh, it's your breath. I visualize. No, the breath and the visualization doesn't really help extension. How do you physically create extension? So, you know, the, the common thing was to lift up through the chest, pull the shoulder blades back and down. Um, these kinds of cues are, I don't know where they come from, really, mm. because when you look at some of the old pictures of yoga uh, and some of the old videos, you know, these black and white videos you can see online, there's no chest lifting. So where did that chest lifting come from? I have no idea, to be honest. And so I, I started looking at other ways that 
other activities move. And, and I write this story in the book about my experience with Cirque du Soleil uh, and, and watching those dancers do back bends, forward bends, side bends without any uh, alignment rules being followed, you know? And it's like, well, they do this stuff day in and day out. How is it that they're not injuring themselves? And not only that, they don't even look like they're efforting much, you know? It's just like they have this calm, peaceful look on their faces. So basically, spine mechanics is me breaking down some of the fallacies or misconceptions about spinal extension, compression even, twisting, how to bend, twist, et cetera. And, and then also this, this, what I'm considering the fundamental aspect that people neglect in sinal movement is this idea of levity. And, and to me, levity is as part of spine mechanics. How do we create lightness, which levity implies this physical lightness, through the practice of yoga for our spine? And there's two ways. The, the physical way is by using the downward pull of gravity mm. and creating an anatomically neutral structure for whatever shape you're creating in a yoga pose where the, you, in the old days, we used to call it rebounding, that the rebound effect of gravity creates this upward lift. Now, where, how do you feel this upward lift? It, it, you know, a good pose is mountain pose, Tadasana, or headstand if you're more advanced, is you're trying to create a, a present moment experience of gravity in your body that's neutral. In Tadasana and headstand, when you find that anatomically neutral moment, and it's not something that you can hold on to. You're constantly in this present moment experience of micro changes that come intuitively. They're not some recipe of, you know, rotations and, you know, it's, it's not that it's trusting through consistent practice, how to create that movement in your body on a, both a physical and a subtle level that creates that momentary experience of perfectly neutral alignment as soon as you feel that, there's an immediate lightness that comes into your body that's uplifting, literally, physically and emotionally. And that's what I'm trying to teach. It's not easy to teach, and it, it requires some trust. And I don't put patience. beginners in headstand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and patience. But I have beginner-appropriate headstands that I teach mm-hmm. in a typical yoga class. So that's spine mechanics in a nutshell. And the last one is fundamentals of flow. And I, I tell this story a little bit in the book about how I spent the first 12, 15 years of practice in Iyengar yoga, the tradition of Iyengar yoga, which was very what I would call static practices, holding poses for totally. extended periods of time. I... I literally had this, you know, coincidental experience of a Ashtanga teacher showing up back in the 70s in my studio in San Luis Obispo. Actually, it was a little bit later, 80s, showing up and saying, hey, I'd like to teach at your studio. And I could just tell she was a yogi and is like, well, what do you teach in Ashtanga? And I said, oh, I've heard about that. What's that about? And she goes, it's flowing style. And I said, great. Can I try it? And she said, yeah, you can come to class. And I said, no, no, I... How about you and I practice every morning? Do you practice every morning? She goes, yeah, perfect. So let's do it. So we literally practiced a primary series of Shtanga for three years together every morning. Wow. And and it was wonderful. I was teaching Iyengar yoga, but do practicing in the morning uh, Shtanga. And the two systems couldn't have been more different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
And so that, that was curious to me. The effects were different. Like I felt a certain way when I was practicing Iyengar yoga. I felt a different way when I was practicing Ashtanga. So flow became, you know, an essential part of my practice. And then with the book, I started to find this research on brainwave flow, you know? And, and so it was like, is this a coincidence that we're, we're using this word flow to describe these related but completely different ideas about the word flow. Flow in yoga means, you know, vinyasa. Vinyasa means Constant kind of linking. movement, yeah. Yeah, so you're linking movement to breath or you're linking movement to movement or you're linking breath to breath, which is what I'm proposing in my book. We also have vinyasa at a purely just breathing level. So is that somehow related? And of course, I found research that supports that, that this conscious slow breathing just by itself creates a different brainwave state that moves us towards this theta brainwave that is the flow state. And then they've just recently discovered the this gamma frequency and brainwave activity, which is paradoxical because it's actually a really high uh, uh, frequency. You wouldn't expect it. You would expect this calm state to be a lower frequency. But they've, they've done research... Uh, this, organization in Santa Cruz called the HeartMath Institute. And mm -hmm. what they found is when you're in that theta kind of flow state, you can get to this peak state um, uh, where just by in that flow state, meditating on the heart or meditating on compassion or love or gratitude, empathy, that it can move your brainwave activity into gamma. And to me, that's interesting because... Mm -hmm. Yogis have talked about this ecstatic state, you know, this kind of uh, samadhi state. And it, the language that yogis use for samadhi and the language that, you know, uh, brain science uses for this heightened gamma brainwave are incredibly similar and, and no accident, in my opinion. So it's so great that science is catching up and that it was part of your book. It was a nice like foundation part of the book to explain all the concepts you were. And it, and it wasn't premium. You know, that's the, that section it's called in my book, uh, science and yoga meet. That was not going to be part of my book. Uh, and it came in a moment where I was about to get on a flight and I needed a book and there was a book sitting on my coffee table that my wife <laughs> had bought years ago and sat on the shelf called The Biology of Belief and uh, Bruce Lipton's book. And when I, mm. I got on the flight, I had the book and by the time I landed in Victoria, six hours later, I had finished the book and that book completely changed the end of my book. And um, it opened me up to this other world of science starting to approach these yogic principles without having any understanding of yoga per se. They were just seeing it scientifically, this kind of molecular, cellular energy that no science has really put a finger on. What, what is this? you know, cellular energy that keeps our cells animated. You know, they're approaching this idea of prana, but they haven't quite made the connection yet. Some have, but my book was just this, hey, your language is very similar to our language. Let's see if we can draw some parallels mm -hmm. and see if it fits. Yeah, yeah. So the book we've been talking about is 
Gravity and Grace, How to Awaken Your Subtle Body and the Healing Power of Yoga, which is a really great book, you guys, if you want to get it. Um, so we talked about gravity already. And the other part here is grace, which we haven't really touched. We touched a little bit on. But can we talk about how that softness, right, participates or brings some grace into the practice? And how is that different than surrender? Or I know you talk about bringing softness around the heart and the belly a little bit more. And we touched a little bit on that. So maybe you have a bit more thoughts around that. Sure. So grace is this term that is... Uh, to me, as powerful as gravity is physically. The, if you look at gray, uh, gravity as an attraction between physical bodies, which is kind of a simple explanation of what gravity is. Yeah. To me, grace is this spiritual equivalent. This, I this love that definition. I underlined it in the book. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I it's, love this. It, it's this um, attraction at a non-physical level. And how do we make sense of that? And literally, it's like when you think about a person in your life, there's one person in your life that all they have to do is walk into a room that you're in and their heart flutters. They just, the, a, your presence in a room, they walk into that room and their whole world lights up. What is that? You know, we, we have so many different names for it. But to me, that's this attraction at a non-physical level. There's a energetic exchange that takes place. Now, how do we cultivate that in yoga, say a singular practice on a yoga mat? And this is where I had these light bulb moments on my mat. I found that this um, inner voice showed up from time and, and it was a different kind of voice. And I, I write about this in the book. It was quiet and almost subtle. I wouldn't even catch it if I was busy going about my day. Mm -hmm. But when I would, at, usually at the end of my practice or in parts of the practice where there was a lot of stillness involved without a lot of effort, this quiet little voice would just show up and it would guide me. And that guidance would be extremely useful as a teacher to share these ideas that were provided from who knows where, you know, wh where does that inspiration come from? Where, where does that connection at a spiritual or soul level show up? Uh, and, and, you know, we all have our own personal relationship with divine presence, where, what is the source of divine presence? And whether you're a religious person or not, I, I, I would be, be hard in this day and age to find anyone that doesn't have some kind of relationship with a higher source of intelligence, let's call it. So for me, this was the grace piece that made grace happen. Grace shows up when, and I think I say this in the book, when surrender is present. When we surrender to things as they are with no attachment to outcome, and we feel what void that surrender creates and grace moves into the void. And th this isn't my own words. This was a book that I discovered as I was writing, ironically called Gravity and Grace, that was written in the 20s by a, like a philosopher, beat poet named Simone Weil. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't a yogi, but when I read the her writing, it's again, it's this coincidental use of language where she's talking like a yogi 
even though she's never practiced. And, and it inspired me. And in a way, her book was another example of grace that showed up. It's usually when there's coincidence, grace is not far away. Yeah. So if I want to come back to some of the science concept, I mean, I would love to just go over everything, but we'll need three episodes. So one thing you mentioned right in the beginning, and it's funny because it's one thing I'm fascinated with, and it's the connective tissue in the fascia. So can we talk a little bit about that and how, why it's important for us to know that in our practice as average yes. yogis? <laughs> so so the, in, in the Hatha, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, there's some reference to the number of yoga poses, you know, and the number of yoga poses is like, I don't know, I, I forget the exact number, but it's some, some crazy number, like 80,000 poses. <laughs> you, have you ever read the Pradipika at all? Yes, but I don't remember that number. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's this uh, number that is, um, you know, just it, it kind of extreme. <laughs> and uh, is, is there really 80,000 or 180,000, whatever it is? No, there's not. Um, there's this, um, you can read between the lines. There is so, such a big number that it's, it's essentially um, infinite. Now, w- when we think about that, we also have this connective tissue web in our bodies. And the amount of connective tissue is literally infinite. And in the last five years, they've found that this old model, 10 years ago, connective tissue was thought to just wrap muscle, wrap joint, wrap organs. Mm -hmm. But what they're finding is that the connective tissue web goes much deeper. And there's such a refinement in the tissue that it's invisible up until five years ago. We didn't have instruments that could actually see it or measure it. And now what they're finding is we can see it at this level where we can see it not only wraps, but penetrates muscle penetrates organs and even penetrates bone. Now, to me, that's like, okay, Do when you think about anatomy classes and you're learning all these muscle groups and learning how to move all these muscles, are we going to have to learn where all these fibers are, all these connective tissue mm-hmm. web reactions are? No, it's, it's too vast. It's too extreme. Uh, so... What it said to me was, okay, connective tissue is really the primary inhibitor of movement. When the connective tissue is stiff, our movement is limited. How do we create uh, more flexibility in our connective tissue? Here's where modern research has inspired me. They have found that uh, connective tissue is a repository for not only physical trauma, but psychological trauma and that the kind of new agey thing, the issues in the tissues, it's actually pretty accurate (laughs) because uh, what we don't process emotionally, um, you know, if we don't process the entire emotions at the moment, we have residue in yoga terminology, samskaras. So these samskaras get kind of embedded in our tissues and it shows up in the most inappropriate at times, inappropriate and unwelcome experiences in life, which I'm sure we've all had (laughs) those kinds of things where you get triggered over, you know, uh, 
putting a fork in the wrong drawer. And this, this happened in my house one, uh, <laughs> putting a fork in the wrong place in the silverware drawer, you know, it was a special fork and blah, blah, blah. Is that the end of the world? Well, it seemed like it in that moment. Where, where was that coming from? You know, well, it was coming from some other apparent, uh, experience where that process, that uh, emotion did not get processed. So when, when we start looking at connective tissue, this goes back to that idea of two-dimensional and three-dimensional movement. What is the most effective way to create a release of inhibition in connective tissue? Create softness in your body. How do we create softness? The first step of creating softness is to become aware of where you're subconsciously holding tension in your body. How do you find that? And in the book, I describe how to find it. And my experience of seeking and then finding the sources of this subconscious tension is the, the chakras. Like when I looked at the three areas in my body where I subconsciously react to trauma physically or psychologically, it first in the diaphragm, in the belly, second in the pelvic floor, and third around the heart. So these three areas were like low-hanging fruit for me. Like, okay, I can feel, let's say my diaphragm tense and my abdomen tense if I'm, you know, in Sometimes when I go in front of 100 people to speak, there's a little bit of stage fright. And where do I feel that stage fright? In my belly. Uh, when I feel fear, I notice it in the pelvic floor. And I can just feel the sphincter muscles of the you know, anal sphincter and urinary sphincter gripped a little bit. And if I just let them go a little bit, I, I feel lighter. And, mm. and grip creates heaviness. Um, release of grip creates lightness. So this is also comes in. So all of a sudden, to me, I'm starting to see, okay, these pieces like a jigsaw puzzle, they're starting to fit into a way I can relate in a new way to my body. The last piece that came to me was, as these scientists study connective tissue, the, the pattern of the weave of this tissue is not logical. It's, it's, it's like chaos theory. The fibers are multi-directional, multi-layered um, systems and mm -hmm. they have a word for it it's called multifractal and when you think about fractal in terms of light it's it's like a uh, what are those little kids toys that you turn you look up in the light and yeah kaleidoscopes yes so it's like that you know uh, anatomically in our connective tissue and uh, you know stretching to me is just so um it's reductive of what we could do it, it's a limitation it's I, exactly so when we when we develop this new presence with connective tissue and how to effectively move connective tissue, this is what I've discovered. And it's worked because of all my rugby related injuries, my, you know, architecture, sitting, drafting, it, it, this way of movement just restores mobility and for people that have had injuries, I, I talk about in the book, a herniated disc, um, it's a it's a lifesaver. It, it brings back this confidence that you will heal and you will get movement back beyond what you're currently experiencing. You may not get back 100%. Like I noticed just with the aging process that there are things that I used to do that I can't do anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. What I can do for my age, I'm content with. So this is, this is another part of, as we age, we, we hopefully get a little bit smarter and we also integrate more things holistically. 
And uh, the, the last piece about connective tissue that I wanted to mention is I talked about the issues in the tissues. You know what the most effective, powerful emotion is in the body to create flow? Mm. I mean, the obvious answer would be love, but I feel like maybe it's a trick question. It is a trick question. (laughs) You would think love's number two based on the scientists that I'm assuming are much smarter than me. Um, The... It's, it's gratitude and empathy. Mm, I thought yeah. compassion, so it could have been very, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just, gratitude. It's, it's all, those things are key. Now, for years, I've taught about the nadis, these subtle channels in the body that the yogis identified and, and kind of uh, geared practices towards heightening the experience of them. And I, the three that are most yogis, especially teachers, know about Shishumna, Idda, and Pingala. I, I've taught about them, told them what, what they are, but I never took the time, and no teacher ever taught me what, what those words translate into English as. And you've read my book, so you probably know this punchline, but I didn't know what Shishumna meant. Mm-hmm. And then when I found it, it means kindness, (laughs) graciousness. Yeah. So energetically, the, what creates the strongest flow in our subtle channels is kindness. Mm -hmm. And how do we strengthen our kindness muscle? We have to learn these tendencies our bodies have to react in the so-called negative emotional way. We're all going to get angry. We're How all they protect get, themselves. Yeah. It, we're all going to have momentary experiences of anger, of um, fear, of jealousies, whatever you, you know, the list is long, but it's how do we see the physical and psychological effects of those emotions? How do we uh, uncoil them? How do we uncoil the, uh, contraction, the physical and psychological contraction that these negative emotions create in our bodies. This is where the physical practice of yoga comes in. And I, we started this talk, or maybe even before the talk, talking about, thank God we found yoga in our lives. You know, like, I'm in awe of the, the blessing that yoga is for my life. And I kind of, I'm ill, let's say, for the people that haven't found yoga yet. That like, oh my God, I... Most of the people that I know that suffer from traumas are you taking medications and things. And the traumas that I've had a lot of loss in my life, and and I I just feel blessed that I my life has essentially been medication free, mm-hmm. and and I, I really rely heavily on yoga as a way to heal both my physical ailments, but then also my psychological ailments. Mm-hmm. All of that, the uncoiling, the nadis the chakras it's all very subtle even the connective tissue that like even feeling that in your body is so subtle so any tips for people to find that subtlety how do they get there if they're like i want to but i feel nothing (laughs) oh good and i this is a story and like i mentioned that i've had a lot of loss in my life so those experiences of loss created numbness especially around the heart yeah and it's like uh i couldn't feel anything. And 
one day I discovered the difference between being numb and feeling nothing. Now, mm. here's this, this is hard to explain. When we have a grip that we, the physical quality of that grip is um, tension, heaviness. How do we feel it? It usually is a crisis. And sometimes the body, the, the, if you were sensitive, you would feel it in the moment. But some of us have lost that ability to feel that on that sensitive level. It takes some uh, increase in symptoms to get our attention. And it could be a frozen shoulder, a, mm-hmm. a overworked sacroiliac joint. Something is going to get above that kind of baseline awareness and get, and what do we do when that language the body uses to communicate an imbalance like that, which is called pain? What, what do most of us do when we experience pain that kind of comes above this threshold of acceptability, let's call it? We usually look for a solution to get out of that. Pain. Yeah, we avoid it. And yeah, either by avoidance or by intervention with a drug or a surgery or whatever. And so, what what this practice for me has done is it, and what I'm encouraging you know the listeners to understand is when you feel any type of pain in your body, it's usually a good indication that something's out of balance in that area, either physically or psychologically. Mm-hmm. Okay, knowing that. Can you look back and think what anything physical happened in that area that caused that trauma? And yeah, usually we can find, oh, when I was four years old, I slipped in the stairs and I bounced my sacrum down the stairs, you know? Okay. So there's some issue in that physical trauma. Um, Let's talk briefly about being abused. You know, like this is a culture, this is a moment in time where all these stories are coming out of people being abused sexually, psychologically, physically. How do we, um, how do we process that abuse? And what, what I'm finding is, okay, if I know in, in my situation, when I was a child, I was sexually abused. How does that manifest as an adult? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm aware that there's a, these lower centers, these lower chakras that are these areas of bound energy. And we go through practices in yoga to free up that energy and circulate that energy in the central channel of the spine for this mystical experience, you know, Kundalini, for instance, as an example. Mm -hmm. Well, what if that bound tension is also there as a teacher? And when we when we experience something that causes trauma and that trauma is stored in this area that the yogis have talked about, what are the practices that we can do to release on a yogic level, that area, whether we can feel it or not visualization. So I have, let's say for instance, the pelvic floor in my situation, I had this idea that part of the reason that I had lower back trouble was this chronic pelvic floor tension. Oh, okay. Let me look at my childhood. Okay. I can see there's a psychological input. I can see these injuries that I've had falling, landing on my pelvis. So how do I uncoil that? And the awareness was literally a light bulb moment. I read somewhere 
in a book, uh, Johari's book. He said, the chakras don't exist in your body until you visualize them. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay. That must mean that visualization is really important. And it's one of the steps that takes us into an awareness of these areas. So let's start there. So I started the, you know, okay, what is trauma? How does it manifest in the pelvic floor? Well, I can feel this chronic tension in my sphincter muscles, for instance. And, and this is where it's a little confusing for yogis because they're taught these bandhas, pelvic floor bandhas, that are talking about contraction. And I, I think um, some of the teaching of bandhas has been uh, overdone. Like we, in the West, we tend so there's one side of the equation that's called contraction and then the other side of the equation is release and i think the understanding of how to release a banda has been neglected a little bit Agreed. and and so my experience was okay how can i soften and you know the word soft to me is a magical word because sanskrit was a language that was designed phonetically and simultaneously as a way to communicate because a lot of it was originally generated in chants and chanting was a, a powerful way to move subtle body energy in the body. So there are words in English that have similar phonetic clues to the definitions that they hold. Soft. When you say the word soft, there's a, an energy that the pronunciation of that word creates vibrationally in the body. Then say the word stretch. Stretch. Soft stretch. There's a there's a sharpness to the yeah. word stretch. More. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's um, that's a clue. That that was a, one of those realizations that mm -hmm. I came to. Like, if I'm trying to stretch, what what am I stretching? I'm trying to get somewhere that I'm currently not at, and that takes me into some future mental state, and it creates suffering because I'm was generally a tight person growing up and then my first 10, 15 years of yoga. And in, it, it makes that gripping action. Totally. Because like... the anxiety of tearing when you're stretching creates a mental vibration that actually is uh, counterproductive. Mm -hmm. So to me, this, this connective tissue energy, this softness, it's all related. It's all bringing us back to this understanding of feeling. Uh, so this is where the conversation began. When I felt nothing, when I was numb, I was frustrated, which created anxiety. Mm. But when I felt this inner space that I create, when I release muscular grip, that just even verbally, that shift from feeling nothing to feeling empty space or nothing but space. That's a whole different experience. Feeling empty. Empty can be peaceful. It doesn't mean exactly. automatically that it's horrible. No. Mm. I had, um, you know, it, it, to, just to be transparent here, I've had some bouts with depression early in life and, and later as an adult. And and at one story that I talk about uh, in the book is is a, a, a experience that I had in India, and in that moment of deep despair, it was suicidal. You know, it was it was like I'm ready to die, and um, and I, I I that place of that deep emptiness of despair 
it, it just, you, you have a complete loss of self. You're, who you thought you were is gone in that moment. And that's why it's, it's such a painful thing. It's like that person that you identify with is dead in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this panic that, oh my God, I'm never going to be the same. I'm going to go crazy, whatever it is. And I experienced all those things in that moment. Just, you know, a while, six months later, um, I had this experience where I, in a, in a meditative state where I found that same loss of self, but this time it was different. This time that loss of self was actually peaceful Mm -hmm. because I saw the limitations of a strong attachment to self that I was free of in that moment. And the difference between the despair, emptiness, and the what's called enlightened or freedom sense Mm -hmm. of emptiness was one was uplifting, lightness, and interconnectedness this in that moment of emptiness i felt connected to everything in the world i felt connected to the people in my life i felt connected to the rock that i was sitting next to it's this powerful experience of interconnectedness when you lose the sense or edges of self and you merge into this deeper Yeah. yeah, into the infinite, deeper experience of life. Oh, yeah. And and that was profound. I, I have moments of depression still, but I know that I'm, you know, usually just one or two, maybe four breaths away from uh, mitigating the intensity of that experience and just return back to a more stable, content place. Mm-hmm. And uh, nature helps. Like if, if I go through a yoga practice and, and I feel still like residue from that depression. All I need to do is get out in nature. And once I'm out in nature, I have this deeper experience. This deeper softness automatically. Yeah, exactly. It's like you walk outside and it's like, you can soften and let go and be kind of carried by nature around you. Exactly. You're interconnected that you're part of a web and, um, I, I think the experience of outer space, looking at the Milky Way at night on a clear night, we have that same possibility when we look inward to this inner galaxy of this multi-trillion cell organism that we are. Mm-hmm. Bruce Lipton's book talked a lot about this, that we're really this, our being is this cooperative strategy of a 40 trillion yeah, cell yeah, yeah. organism. I love that. Idea. I love that description. Oh, this conversation is fascinating and I would just keep going forever, but we have to wrap it up now. So yeah, I agree. <laughs> is there anything else you want to add before we finish? Just one takeaway you'd like to leave listeners with? Yeah, I would. This idea of moving into the unknown, especially if the listener is a practicing yogi and goes to class on a regular basis, there's a a step that all of us on a yogic path have to take. And that's the step towards the inner teacher at some point where we let go of any alliance to some external authority, be it or style of you. And we turn inward and we just create this uh, first step towards um, self-authority. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's a, it's a frightening place to be honest. Uh, 
yeah, it's a frightening place. And my encouragement is that it starts by taking the first step. Mm. And if you fall flat, that you give it a break for a day and then the next day try it again. And, and really it's a trial and error process that eventually produces result. And, uh, you know, when I did it, I had no guidance. I had no one to rely on. Uh, and what I think the book is going to help people is it's going to give some context so that the, the students who are at that point in their life where they want to step into their own self-authority have a little bit of guidance uh, and how to approach that step. And then once they take the step, the book also provides some ideas on how to integrate the things that you learn self uh, um, self-intuition, learn through your own intuition. There's some guidance in the book that helps you process some of that. And, and take the next step once you've taken the first step. Mm. I'll put all your info in the show notes, but in the meantime, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to study with you or just say hello? Or Yeah, I mean, I encourage communication. I'm, I'm on a book 42 city book tour that will include What's Canada. coming up next? Well, like, uh, Santa Barbara and Ojai this coming weekend in, in Southern California. Early 2020, what's coming up in early 2020, like January? Uh, Canada, I'm at the Victoria Yoga Conference uh, cool. in Victoria. So if you're in Canada, I'll be teaching there. Um, I'm also making plans to go to Australia and New Zealand towards the latter part of 2020. So that is also uh, on the books. Awesome. Um, but uh, in the short term, um, just levityyoga.com, uh, levity spelled with one Y, um, okay. is, is the best place to start this kind of maybe new type of relationship with me through my website. And then on the, on the website form, uh, you can send me an email to begin a conversation. And one other place, online classes, is uh, yogaanytime.com. Mm -hmm. And I've got three seasons of about 30 classes that people can have a, a physical experience of some of these principles of levity yoga. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. It was truly a pleasure to chat with you. Same. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen. And if you wanted to continue, don't forget to visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat to donate or become a VIP member and get your hands on our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guests of today, Peter Stereos, or my top five biggest takeaway from this episode. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time.